Black holes collide. Can we survive? You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Some 9 billion light years away, a pair of black holes are on a collision course. It's a cosmic waltz that could come to an end within 10,000 years, which will shake space and time. It's now the second possible observation of two massive black holes colliding, and scientists are eager to watch the destruction. But it sounds terrifying. So why are physicists so excited for this cosmic crash? Are We There Yet's intern, Beatrice Oliveira, reached out to Michele Valisneri, a physicist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in Southern California, to find out. His research looks at how these massive black holes behave by sifting through radio data expelled by these cosmic giants. Then, could we survive an encounter with a black hole? Theoretical physicist Jana Levin tackles that question in her most recent book, Black Hole Survival Guide, where, along with sharing some survival tips, she reimagines the way we think and talk about black holes. Actually, black holes are more of a place than a thing. They're actually empty. We'll revisit a conversation with Levin from November 2020. All things black holes, that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. Some 9 billion light years away, there are two giant black holes that are circling towards each other. Astronomers say the orbit between the two is getting smaller, which means they're getting closer and closer to smashing into one another. Michele Valisneri is a physicist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in Southern California. He studies these two black hole systems and spoke with Arby There Yet's intern Beatrice Oliveira about what an event like this means for our understanding of black holes. Let's see. I think it means many things to, to, to different people. But for uh, astrophysicists like me, a black hole is a very special thing. It is something that uh, once existed only in mathematics as a consequence of Einstein's theory of relativity. And it, it seemed quite uh, extreme, impossible. It seemed like, like, like uh, one of those predictions that you, you get out of mathematics and should not exist. And yet they were found, right? They exist in a universe. We can see them uh, through uh, many different types of observations. And some of the most amazing black holes are those that sit at the centers of uh, galaxies. Uh, those are huge. Um, you may have seen uh, uh, the, the first image ever of such a black hole, of M87, um, which was, was done with painstaking radio observation from, uh, from many telescopes. So that black hole uh, was something like uh, 6 billion solar masses. So like 6 billion of our own sun in, uh, in a single body. Um, and yet these are, these are very compact objects, uh, something like our solar system, although they are so massive, and they're very simple objects. Uh, basically, if you, if you have a black hole, just uh, uh, if you know how heavy it is, its mass, and if you know how rapidly it's spinning around, that's all you need to know. It's, it's a perfect, like this perfect jewel or the, this, this perfect crystal uh, in the sky that just happens to exist. And how do we even know that this is happening? So that gets to uh, to how we interpret the data uh, that we see. Um, among galaxies, there's a small percentage that are known as active galaxies that are much more luminous, like a thousand times more luminous than the regular galaxies. So we can see them very far, almost to the edge of the observable, observable universe. 
um, we interpret, we understand that they're so luminous because at the at the very center there's a black hole that is uh, you know is gobbling, is is accreting lots of matter very rapidly from its surroundings. Uh, that uh, that matter, that gas gets very hot and produces lots of radiation. Some of these are even more luminous and, and more strange because they have these jets that, uh, uh, due to the magnetic field, we think, just shoot off the, uh, the top and the bottom, let's say, of the, of the black hole and of its uh, disk of uh, matter that's accreting. Um, we know many, many of these systems. And uh, for many years, people have been on the lookout for the telltale sign that uh, it's not just a single black hole there, but there are two. Um, and that sign is the periodicity of the signal. What does that mean? That you see a, a change in the luminosity um, of, of your observations that is very regular, a bit like a clock or, or, or would, uh, would mark the time. Um, this system, PKS2131, is the one that has the most convincing periodicity so far. And, uh, um, and, and that's why... Uh, it was first observed, uh, it was first, this was first noticed in data uh, from the last uh, 10 to 15 years. Uh, over 15 years, we saw something like three cycles. So uh, the luminosity from, from the system going up and down three times. That's maybe not enough because these systems are naturally variable. So the, the light changes a lot for reasons that may be random. So you may see something that looks periodic, uh, but it's not really. Um, however, Caltech astronomers, in particular this, uh, this amazing undergraduate student, were able to find data from the 1970s and 1980s uh, that already showed that very same periodicity. So uh, over 45 years, we see again and again uh, this, uh, this very characteristic uh, uh, shape, this very characteristic uh, change in, in the amplitude. Um, now, uh, what can generate a, a change like that? One of the simplest ways to have a, a, a regular repeating phenomenon is to have a binary. Because a binary goes around, right, to, to, to stars, to black holes in this case, go around each other. And, um, <coughs> and they, do so, they do so in a regular repeating fashion. So the simplest explanation that we have for these observations is that these are two black holes and that are uh, very big and very close. Uh, it may be something else, okay? So one can come up with different scenarios that have to do with a black hole that has a tilting axis or uh, something more complicated. But the, the simplex, simplest explanation that we have, and two black holes that big that are going around uh, um, once every five years are going to merge very soon because by going around so fast, they lose energy to the gravitational field, to gravitational waves. Uh, and then in something like, from 5,000 to 10,000 years, they will eventually find each other and merge and make a single black hole. How long will the crash take? Or will it just be a big boom? Or will it slowly come together? Or will we even know what will happen till it happens? If the black holes are really there, the crash would be a matter of days to, to, to maybe weeks, which for for bodies that are so big is, is very, very fast. It means they're going, they're going very, very rapidly. And how long will these two black holes finally collide? Well, we, we think it's a few thousand of years if the black holes are really there. Uh, now, th there are lots of uncertainties that go into this. 
some of them will be resolved by continuing to watch the system over the next five to ten years. Uh, there's, an, there's another prospect that is, that is very exciting to me and my own colleagues uh, specifically, which is uh, another thing we do in astronomy is to try to detect gravitational waves. You may have heard about LIGO, which in 2015 saw the first uh, merger of two small black holes, okay, stellar mass, solar mass black holes. And as since seen tens of more of these mergers. These are close to us. They're in our galactic neighborhood. Um, bigger, huge black hole like this will, will give off different signals that change much more slowly with time scale of years. And to look for, the, to look for those, we use a different technique called pulsar timing, where we use uh, uh, radio emitters, pulsars in our galaxies, as clocks and uh, by monitoring this, this, networks, uh, this network of, um, of galactic emitters, we can look for, again, periodic, so regular uh, perturbations in their emission that could be explained by gravitational waves. Um, so as we collect more and more of this radio data looking for gravitational, day, uh, for gravitational waves, we may be able to see the gravitational signal from this PKS2131 uh, system if the black holes are big enough and if it's if it's indeed a binary so that's that's another thing to to look forward to because uh, the very characteristic uh, time scales and size of this uh, system make it uh, uh, suitable for our observation technique for gravitational waves and when will we be seeing this crash happening is this going to be in 10,000 years no, no, we would see now. So that's the, the final merger. The final merger would be in 10,000 years. Uh, but uh, this, this, uh, this regular gravitational radiation from the orbit, we would see it in a few years as we collect more and more radio data. If, the, if it's really there and if it's sufficiently, if they're sufficiently big. Right now, using the data we have, we can put what we call an upper limit on the masses of these black holes. So we can say if it was larger than something like 5 billion solar masses, then we would see it in the data that we have already, and we don't. So it's a, it's a negative result in the sense. If it's there, it needs to be a bit smaller, or a lot smaller. It could be a lot smaller. When they do crash into another, will they be affecting other celestial objects around it? So these, uh, these binary... Uh, all these supermassive black hole binaries are at the center of galaxies. So uh, certainly we expect you to see some kind of fireworks, a change in the, in the radiation that, uh, uh, that you get there. Um, how the galaxy, the galaxy itself is, uh, is affected um, is not quite my field, but uh, uh, for, for instance, these jets have an important effect. They create wind okay, of particles, lots of particles within the galaxy that uh, in different conditions can either shut off or turn on uh, the uh, the birth of new stars, so they're, they're generally they're, they're very important to, to to their own galaxies. So over you know cosmic ages, this this galaxy will be different because uh, um, something happened and it's at its center. Has there been other black holes that have crashed, and if so, how is this any different? And how often does black holes crash into one another? We're pretty sure they have been, but we've never seen them or never uh, never seen the the signs of that. But um, we see lots of galaxies that are in the process of merging. 
We know that most of the gal- those galaxies have uh, huge black holes at their center. Uh, it follows that, that, that those black holes have uh, a chance to, to find each other and eventually merge. It may be that this process is too slow in many galaxies, so that effectively uh, those, those two black holes will keep orbiting each other at a respectable at a distance without uh, ever coming close enough to merge. But we do think that uh, um, many of them will. And in fact, there's a space mission called LISA, uh, which is developing, de- being developed by the European Space Agency and by NASA and should launch in the 2030s. Uh, that targets, among other things, the merger of uh, not supermassive but uh, massive black holes, things like millions of solar masses. And if everything goes well, you should see hundreds of those mergers within the um, the five to ten years of, of its operation. And we have been speaking with Dr. Vedasnelli. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was physicist Michele Valisneri speaking with Are We There Yet's intern Beatrice Oliveira. Still to come, surviving an encounter with a black hole, Are We There Yet is back in a minute. Listening to Are We There Yet? Here on WMFE, I'm Brendan Byrne. Black holes have captured the attention of the masses with breakthroughs in imaging, gravitational wave detection, and Nobel Prize recognition. So, what's spurring this new dawn of black hole discovery, and how can scientists communicate such complex phenomena to a general audience? I spoke with Jan Levin, professor of physics and astronomy at Columbia University back in November 2020 about her book, Black Hole Survival Guide, and just how these cosmic giants are capturing our imagination and terrifying us all at the same time. Yeah, I really enjoyed kind of dispelling a lot of misimpressions about black holes in this book. Uh, People often think of a black hole as a dense object, as though you go up to the black hole and you will knock on some intense surface. Actually, black holes are more of a place than a thing. They're actually empty. They're they're, uh, nothing, as I describe in the book, which is one of the first chapters to create the sense for people about how kind of austere they are as, um, as an astrophysical phenomenon. So A lot of people hear the story that a star collapses and makes a black hole. That's just one avenue to making a black hole. It is not the definition of the black hole. So it is true that it's a death state of a star. You start with a very massive star, that star collapses. What happens is eventually it gets so dense, the star, not the black hole, but that it creates around it a curved space-time, as Einstein imagined, that was so strong that not even light could escape falling in. But what happens then, we call that the event horizon, and what happens then is the star is forced to continue to collapse. So the star is gone. It falls towards the interior of the black hole, creating this incredible extreme curvature in the center, which we can talk about. But the event horizon, which is really what we mean when we talk about a black hole, is a place. There's nothing there. So if you were to fall across the event horizon, your experience would be to some extent unspectacular. You would just be 
falling into the shadow cast by this extreme curvature of the space-time. It would be no more dramatic in some sense than stepping into the shadow of a tree. And so the event horizon is really what we're talking about when we're talking about taking pictures of black holes, when we talk about how big they are. That's the shadow cast by the event horizon. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit more about the event horizon because I know that there have been some some pretty interesting breakthroughs recently about you know, actually seeing what one of these things looks like. I mean, kind of dive in a little bit more about what the event horizon is and, and what we know more about now because of, you know, some of the scientific breakthroughs that have happened. It really is tremendous that when you tell people that prior to a year ago, um, 2019, the, the world had never seen an image of a black hole. And that surprises people because we discuss observations of black holes, but we're almost always talking about indirect observations. So really the mayhem that black holes create around them when there's debris or stars or other things that veer too close. And that's what we see. That's what we detect with telescopes. Uh, But we have never taken a picture of a black hole. And this incredibly exciting announcement was made in April of 2019 Uh, from the Event Horizon Telescope Project, where they revealed the first ever image of a black hole. And in that image, what you are seeing really is a bright ring of hot matter encircling the shadow, the event horizon. And so what you're really seeing is the shadow cast because this bright ring um, illuminates what you would not be able to see otherwise, which is essentially the event horizon. The Event Horizon Telescope doesn't exactly get all the way to the Event Horizon, but it gets incredibly close. It's as close as uh, we've ever been able to detect anything near a black hole. And so when that image was revealed, and if people saw Interstellar, <laughs> um, it was a pretty good prediction of what, of what the image would look like. Um, it was really uh, this stunning moment where even though we knew we had great predictions for what it would look like, it was still quite remarkable to for a billion people on one day to lay eyes for the first time in human history on a black hole event horizon. I mean, and is, is it just going to get better or, you know, more clear or get closer? I mean, it, it, theoretically, can we see better pictures of it? Well, so here's, here's some of the interesting things that will happen next. The Event Horizon Telescope is a very long project. It took decades um, collecting data for a couple of years, but it took decades to, to organize, to rally. So what the Event Horizon Telescope is, is it is a collection of observatories around the globe that work in concert, even though the Earth is rotating and things are happening at different times, to make this global Earth-sized observatory work as though it was simultaneously taking a snapshot of the sky. And, And so you need something as big as the size of the Earth because the black hole is actually small. And when you think about resolving small things, we want bigger and bigger telescopes to resolve small things. So we needed a telescope the size of the Earth. Now, the argument that black holes are small is also something people don't understand. They always hear this verbiage about there are these monsters and uh, you know, weapons of destruction. But actually, the whole point of the black hole is that it's heavy but small. So if you were to take a black hole the size of the sun, the mass of the sun, it would only be six kilometers across. I mean, that's stunningly small. That's smaller than a city. And, um, and if you think about trying to resolve something that small, it's actually very difficult. So what you need is an incredibly supermassive black hole 
We have one in the center of our galaxy, which we call Sag A star because we see it in the direction of the constellation Sagittarius. It is 4 million times the mass of the sun, but it's only, it's less than 20 times the width of the sun across. So think about how exceptionally tiny that is in space, given how much mass, 4 million times the mass of the sun uh, is affiliated with that black hole. So to see something that's only 20 times the width of the sun on the sky across and pushing it 26,000 light years away, you are trying equivalently to resolve something like a piece of fruit on the moon. That's how small it is. And yeah. so um, it was an extraordinary achievement. But the big surprise at the reveal was that we didn't get a picture of Sagittarius A-star. We did not get a picture of our own black hole. There was only one other candidate, and that is an absolutely gigantic black hole in the center of M87, which is a galaxy about 55 million light years away, so much further. But the black hole is so much heavier. It's six billion times the mass of the sun in that vicinity that it subtends about the same size on the sky. And, and so the big surprise was the first picture we ever took was in a different galaxy, M87. So what's next is, of course, to try to capture Sagittarius A-star. Mm-hmm. And that would be very exciting. The book is framed around a theoretical encounter with a black hole. And, and I don't want to give too much away about what's in it. But, I mean, you told us that if, if we would be on that event horizon, it would be pretty unremarkable to us. But I've got to assume if the two of us found ourselves pretty close to one of these things – um, some bad things would happen, right? What, what would happen if what would happen if, if we found ourselves uh, in the vicinity of one of these black holes? Well, lots of bad things can happen around black holes. Um, if there is debris and magnetic fields, the black holes actually create these magnetic storms. They basically drive these astronomical ray guns. So you can be blasted by these jets that are uh, created outside of the black hole. We see jets that are sometimes millions of light years across. We see jets that are so powerful that they blast holes in other galaxies, presuming, you know, presumably uh, annihilating any emergence of life on any planets there. So, so they are quite lethal in their way. Um, so if you're around a black hole, you don't want to get in the direction of the ray gun. You will be, you will be uh, sprayed with x-rays and gamma rays, which obviously would deteriorate. It would be like uh, being exposed to intense radiation. Um, and if you cross the event horizon, your doom is sealed. That is for sure. <laughs> so you don't want to cross the event horizon, even though that moment itself might not be dramatic. Um, what comes next is, is pretty terrible. Pretty terrible. All right. So I will stay very, very far away from them. <laughs> and in, in fact, you know, Sir Roger Penrose was just awarded the Nobel Prize uh, in October. We were all very excited about that for work he did in the 60s, which proved that once you cross the event horizon, there is this inevitability of march forward towards what we call a singularity, which is a region of infinite curvature and um and and as many people have described you will be flayed and torn apart as you approach that region in space time but more profoundly which uh, i don't think a lot of people realize is that from the outside if you and your astronaut friend chose different paths and one of you stayed outside you would imagine that that point that dreaded uh, point of annihilation to be the center of this black hole but for the person who crosses it's not a point in space at all Actually, their space-time is so deformed relative to yours that they perceive this as a moment in the future, as a point in time. So you can no more avoid the singularity than you could avoid 
the elapse of time, the inevitability of time approaching you in the future. Um, so that idea really is due to Roger proving, Sir Roger proving that that was the case for all black holes. And that's why your doom is absolutely sealed. There's nothing you can do. Doom sealed. That is good to know. <laughs> good to know. No, no going back. Uh, uh, Janet, you, met, <laughs> you mentioned uh, uh, two things. We, we, we talked about the, uh, the, the 2019 images of, of the event horizon and then also the, the Nobel Prize recognition for, for black hole research. But there's also um, work on LIGO and the gravitational waves. Um, that's kind of been propelling this moment of, of black hole discovery. How, how has uh, LIGO and these gravitational wave breakthroughs helped our understanding of, of what black holes are? Uh, it's an extraordinary story, the story of LIGO. Um, my, my previous book, Black Hole Blues, was on that, on that climb. I, I followed the experiment um, for years to describe just the tenacity of this kind of Mount Everest climbing story of trying to make it to the summit. Uh, in the 50 years over which LIGO was imagined to build, um, even the original architects like Ray Weiss and Kip Thorne uh, were not sure it would succeed. It was just a tremendous scientific ambition and hoping nature would provide. And actually, a lot of people on the project said, oh, we might never see black holes. Hopefully, we'll detect other things, but not black holes. And that's why it was called Black Hole Blues, because Ray Weiss, who is now a Nobel Prize winner, said to me, if we don't detect black holes, this whole thing's a failure. And he felt it on the eve of the most advanced instrument coming online. Um, and, uh, and it was within a couple of weeks that the first detection was made. So what LIGO does, which is extraordinarily different than anything else, is it does not take pictures of the sky. If you think about astronomy since Galileo, almost everything is taking collecting light with telescopes light of different varieties, but collecting light with telescopes. LIGO is a recording device. It is like a giant uh, antenna, and it records the ringing of space-time. If you imagine space-time ringing like a drum. Um, and so when two black holes collide, they're like mallets on this drum. They create this ringing in space-time. You could technically, if you were nearby, hear it with your ears in principle. It's literally much closer to sound uh, in that sense. And so that's why we always talk about LIGO as recording things. And, um, and when it made its first detection, it did detect two black holes orbiting each other, merging into one quiet black hole. They detected the sound of that collision that happened over a billion years ago. And so when, when LIGO plays its discovery, it plays it back to us as, as sound. You can listen to what it sounds like. That was Jan Levin, professor of physics and astronomy at Columbia University. We spoke back in November 2020 about her book, Black Hole Survival Guide. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. You can do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, basically wherever you get your podcasts, or you can visit wmfe.org slash are we there yet. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Production assistance this week from our intern, Beatrice Oliveira. Support for Are We There Yet comes from you, our listeners. Consider making a donation to WMFE. You can give online at WMFE.org or by calling 1-800-785-2020. Consider becoming a sustaining member at $5 or $10 a month to help fuel this show's exploration efforts. Give online at WMFE.org or, again, by calling 1-800-785-2020. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.